Well, good morning, Sunridge. How are you doing today? To everyone out there, we hope that you are doing so, so well. If you're a guest with us this morning, you're joining us remotely, obviously. You can email at us at info at sunridgechurch.org if you'd like to get connected to a human being. We'd love to hear from you and know that you're with us. And to the rest of you who call Sunridge your home church, your family, we are so thankful that you would join us again for this third part of a series that hopefully has been really impactful for you. My name is Jed, and it is an absolute privilege and honor to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And as Becky alluded to earlier, and as I just did, we're in the third week of a series called Half the Church. And I've got to tell you, if you have not gone back to watch the first two messages in this series, please do so. Honestly, if you want to, you could pause this and you can go back and watch those and then catch up on this later. But the reality is you have to hear where we've been in order to get some context, meaningful context for where we are going to be today. And as I was walking into our worship center building this morning, members of our worship team were actually reflecting on last week's message. And Britt did such an incredible job teaching us about Azer Connecto. And again, please, if you have not, I'm going to say it one more time. Go back and watch those messages. You can check them out on our Facebook page or go to sunridgechurch.org. Hit media and watch those there. This morning, we are actually going to be taking a topic of power. And there was no fancy title for this series. I didn't know what else to call it. Bob and I were going back and forth. We, we just decided we're going to call it power. And when you think about power, here's the question for you. What comes to mind? How would you define it? Perhaps it's the ability to change things, or perhaps it's being in authority or control of others. Maybe it's having the last word. Whether or not you think about power negatively or positively, the reality is power and the stewardship of it is foundational to all of human life and relationships. So on the negative end of the spectrum, you may be thinking about power struggles or grasps for power or abuses or misuses of power. Perhaps you can think about a time in your life when you felt powerless or voiceless to the decisions of those over you or above you or around you. Or maybe you think about it positively. You can think about individuals in your life in positions of power or authority who exercise that on behalf of you or others around you who poured out for those. Positive, negative, it's something that we deal with. That's the reality. But historically, here's the objective truth. Men have been understood to inherently and thus predominantly control power and the authority to exercise that. Again, that's not something that we can debate over. That objectively has been the truth of reality for most of history. Men have inherently, in other words, when we say that just the fact that they were born biologically as males has given them some sort of defining separation from females. And because of that. When we look at the stories of history, we can see that predominantly men have absolutely been the ones who have controlled power and also had the authority to exercise it. We know that power and authority can be used synonymously, and that's important for us to concede that it's difficult to talk about power without talking about being the one who is in control of it. Here's some 
irony for us as well. When it comes to how we in the church talk about power and things that relate to it, like the relationships between men and women, if this has been the case for much of history, then we also have to understand that in the church and in other faith religions as well, men have been the ones who have come to the texts and have interpreted them and theologized about them and also been the ones disseminating the majority of that information. And so as a pastor on staff here, as a man, I'm a part of the many who have been responsible for disseminating information about Scripture and truth. But here's what Scripture teaches us, right? Biblically, we know that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus the Christ. Find that in Matthew 28. We know that he's sovereign king over the cosmos. We know that by him and through him all things were created, things on heaven and on earth. We know that God himself is the one who has all power and authority, and yet, and yet in his sovereignty, he has given us the capacity and power to choose. So here's what might be surprising to you in light of all of those things. You might think that I'm here today to convince you about a particular position, but here's, here's another thing that we have to concede. Categories of patriarchy or complementarianism, egalitarianism or feminism actually all miss the point. Now, I'm not making a comment about all of these things and the banners in which they fly. I can't give you the bullet points for all of them. When it comes to our semantics of these things, just like we would in modern times have to say that just because you identify in this political party or that political party, either way, at the end of the day, it's how we as individuals want to steward our roles and the power that we have. And so, Brit last week expressed and explained that the majority of the biblical text has been written with a patriarchal backdrop, and hopefully you will have understood by this point in time that pre-fall in the garden when God created men and when he took of Adam's rib and created Eve, when she is described as helper suitable, it isn't a subordinate position, but in the Hebrew text, Azer Kenegdo, and the roughly 21 times that she's in the Old, Old Testament, it's used to describe God himself. And so there's this partnership that existed with men and women before all of those categories that have tried to wrestle with what we do in a world that has been living in a fallen condition. So again, if the point today isn't to just convince you to, to leave this place and say that now I'm an egalitarian or I'm a complementarian, if it's not just to comment on other movements in history that have great warrant and reason, but to actually talk about your power and my power, uh, we're going to look at two texts today. Two texts that have been used traditionally to defend or fight within about complementarian and egalitarian positions. And hopefully, as we look at these two texts, we will see that it's not really about warring over the names, but something deeper. Perhaps Christ, the one who inspired us all in the first place. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to go heavy hitting right off of the gate. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, 
reads this way, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's so much here. And quite frankly, I've been in many discussions. I was a part of that subcommittee with our elders and some of those women as we for several It was more than several months, actually. It was a year and a half behind closed doors. We talked about text after text, and this, of course, was one of them. And while I was there, I heard arguments on either side about the Greek, and and it's kind of ironic because none of us are Greek scholars, and yet here we are taking out our interlinears or going on Google and arguing about what it means in the Greek for head and and whether or not there's a difference there, if it should be arche or kephale, and, and those are important things. But it's easy to get lost in the weeds and make it about things that we want to make it about. And remember, historically, if men were the ones who were presenting much of this information, it's not easy to surmise or see how we could have gotten lost in things like debating what headship means or who has final word or authority instead of understanding that the only reason why the Apostle Paul even takes time to comment on these things is because of how radical Jesus Christ is. Remember this, when Paul writes to these churches in the region of Ephesus, the historical context is patriarchal, master-slave, honor-shame, dominant cultures. That's the way society functions. In other words, men are the ones who are in positions of power. They rule over their families, Fathers rule over their kids, and of course, free men rule over slaves. It is a given. Let me show you something that would have influenced this directly. About 400 or so years before the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, this comes from Aristotle. You may know who he is, a classic Greek philosopher. You may hear Aristotelian thought or philosophy. And here he is writing and commenting on the household code, the norm of ethics that ought to define how the best of families, not even the best, how all of families ought to operate. He writes this, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, and the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. 
For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. When one rules and the other is ruled, we endeavor to create a difference of outward forms and names and titles of respect. The relation of the male to the female is of this kind, but there the inequality is permanent. The rule of a father over his children is royal, for he receives both love and the respect due to age, exercising a kind of royal power. The free man rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female or the man over the child. And although the parts of the soul are present in all of them, they are present in different degrees, for the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has, but it is without authority. And the child has, but it is immature. You, you may hear this and, and hear me reading this and think, well, that's really, really intense. But there is no intensity here. This is a simple stated assumption for the way that the world has always been and always should continue to be. Not only for the wisest of wise Aristotle, but the many under him who would have looked at him as a supreme source of truth and understanding. And there's no shortage of quotation or historical documentation of the manner in which this was exercised in terrible ways. And yet, of course, there were many, many documentations of ways in which great men did not choose to abuse this stated fact of how they were supposed to be. That tells us something. We are encultured. Enculturation is the process by which an individual learns the traditional content of a culture and assimilates its practices and values. Here's the simple way to put that for us. You were born. You were born, and you were powerless to choose to whom you were born to or whether or not they would continue to oversee you. You were born in a particular place without having chosen whether or not you wanted to be born there into a time, into a context, into a culture. And as you and I were raised in this culture, we were in culture. In other words, the things that we were taught, we did not really even have the faculties to decide whether or not those things were true. If you were told that this is brown, then that's brown. And if you were told that this is black, and that's black, or if this shirt is, I don't know what the color of the shirt is, so I won't tell you what it is, but either way, we were born into it. It was assumed that we would understand it and take it. And when we read passages of Scripture like this, it's easy to think that Paul was creating something, that he was saying this is the model way that Christian families would operate, but no. He is actually radically commenting on the understood household code of that time and hundreds of years before and quite frankly, centuries of domination. And so when we see Paul write about husbands and wives, when we see him write about kids to parents, masters to slaves. You can see the real parallel is what we saw Aristotle comment on and the many other thinkers around him, around him. But what you will not see in Aristotle, but what you will see in Scripture clearly is two things, and one is really important. It's Christ, Jesus the Christ. And if you find Christ there, 
you will see that because of him, rather than just speaking to the men and telling them what to do, we actually, for the first time in a code, see that the lessers, the the subjects of the rule, are actually spoken to directly. Because it's not really so much as whether or not that stuff exists, whether or not husbands are the head of their homes, whether or not they have the authority and the power. No, we see that in Christ there is a speaking to of all, and more than anything, a predominant of it, majority of it going to the man, remembering it's actually not about him, it's about Christ. And so you'll notice here if you continue to read, that a lot of times, even though we get stuck here, we could say, okay, well now it's about parents and kids, or now it's about slave and masters, and you have to ask yourself, where do you fall in that code? And quite frankly, for many of us, we actually don't find ourselves here. We don't see ourselves as masters and slaves, and yes, all of us were kids to some parents, but as we grow older, we see that power dynamic shift. The majority of us are probably not even married. So again, remembering that Paul isn't trying to just comment on how you and I ought to conform. Instead, he's pointing to Christ in the most subversive, radical way. And so the traditional way then that people would then try and find argument for that is they would go to the preceding verse, which should not be separated. Verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And honestly, if we really wanted to be true to the text interpretively, we would say that's more than sufficient. It's more than sufficient to say there's no way in heaven or hell that Aristotle or the average person, male or female, would have looked at that and not been completely shocked. And so while we talk about headship as positioning, we see Christ in action, sacrificially pouring out. But that's not where I want to stop. You, you see, that's, that's an, uh, a really simplistic, it, it should be more than enough, but it's not. So, so may I show you the way that Paul subverts this even further? You go back to the beginning of this chapter, and he writes this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, the Greek there is technon, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is so, so critical. We can leave this up here because regardless of what you were born into, your socioeconomic status, your your racial, your your gender, none of those things, remember, you, you could be completely disregarded but as Paul is speaking to this church family and commuting community, he puts everyone in the same place. You see, right now, in 2020, whether or not you are single or married or divorced, whether or not your parents are alive or you're having kids for the first time, regardless of your color or creed, you understand here that we are all created beings. And so God is the one who is over us. And Paul is writing to a church community, reminding them the only reason why they gather, the only reason why this is even a thing, whether it shouldn't be a thing, is because of God. And he puts them in the position where, again, in this society, these kids are immature and young They ought to be raised into the way that society expects them to be. And so when Paul starts by saying, you are all 
children saying something about not just us, but the one who makes that possible. I want to show you something. We need to step outside of this letter just to prove this point. Uh, there's a word that gets confused often. It's precedent and precedence. Have you heard people use those words similarly? I'm not saying precedent, but precedent and precedence. It's really easy to confuse how those words ought to be used. When we say the word precedent, that means that something before has established established a reason to see or read something that way. That's precedent. We say that there is precedent, so that thing has precedence. We are saying it's most important. It's been elevated to a position that has whole, excuse me, more weight. So precedent and precedence. And when you go one book to the left, one letter in your Bible, you will find precedent and precedence from the Apostle Paul. This is key, again, he writes this letter to the church in Galatia previously, prior to him writing to the churches in Ephesus, and it's really, really important that this is brought forward correctly. And a lot of your Bible isn't listed out chronologically, but in one of those rare instances, it is. And so I'm really grateful for that, even though that really shouldn't be the point. But in Galatians chapter three, Paul writes this. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. What's really fascinating about the historical context of this letter is that the church in Galatia was filled with Gentiles, non-Jews, which would, again, we don't see it, but racism and culture, that's the undercurrent of the whole New Testament. So much of the division that we find is because people are trying to grapple with how in the world this mystery that God would use Christ Jesus to bring together groups of people who were supposed to be separate and never joined. Suddenly, is there one? And Paul writes about that in Ephesians. The letter of Ephesians is about the marvelous work about Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's mystery and plan. Everything is in him. And in Galatians, when Paul is writing to these people, he is so confounded by the fact that these Gentile converts, these people who have come to accept and believe that they are invited into this family of faith, that they're somehow now beginning to think that in order to be accepted by God, in order to have righteousness through him, that they're supposed to mimic the customs and traditions of the Jewish faith, physically even, circumcision, to grown males. We don't talk about that enough. It's kind of weird. Paul writes, neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything, but everything, all that matters is faith working itself through love. And the reason why I put this up here is because even though in a lot of our translations there has been a good attempt to make sense of what Paul is saying, this actually in the Greek doesn't say technon. It doesn't say children. Remember precedent and precedence. Paul is masterfully doing something here. This is what it really should say. Before faith came, we were imprisoned in the garden under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law is our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons, yos, of God through faith. Let's remember something here. This is a patriarchal, master-slave, honor-shame, dominant culture, society. You see, our English, it tries to do gymnastics here, and understandably so, but it's so key to recognize that Paul, even though he knows the word technon, even though he can say children, he uses the word yos to describe sons. Because in a patriarchal, master, slave, honor, shame, dominant culture, society, the son, and more than just any son, the firstborn son was of preeminence. The firstborn son was the one who would inherit. He was the heir. He was the one who would get to rule after his father. And so when Paul inserts this language, it sets up the radicalness of what follows. This is the passage of scripture that we know. The next, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Megs, would you go back to the verse before? Thank you. Verse 28, do you see it? And now it's easy to just read that without understanding the the son's part beforehand, but that son's part beforehand sets this up so, so well, because Paul isn't saying that there's no longer ethnic groups. He's not saying that Jews and Greeks don't exist. He's not saying there aren't slaves or free people. He's not saying that there aren't men or women. This isn't a statement on gender. He's not saying any of those things. What he is saying is Jesus the Christ takes every single category of society that you may find yourself powerlessly in, and yet it is his power to redeem and reconcile all things that make it so that all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is so critical because after Paul speaks of these things, he continues to use the son language, but later on he transitions. So just to make sure that people understand that the dominant son is now applied to every single person who is in Christ. He says this later on, my little children, technon, for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I were present with you now and could change my tone for I am perplexed about you. To keep this up here and see how interesting this is. I'm so glad Paul did this. My little children, this technon piece, the the fact that he's describing them now in a position where he wants to encourage them like a more mature adult to see something they have not seen previously. Uh, Jesus himself, when he refers to the disciples over and over, there's this little children, this, this tenderness language of coming to them, hoping that they would learn something new to see it differently, but then see what he does here. That's pretty ironic when men want to talk about, oh, look, just look. Paul using the metaphor, the imagery of being in the pain of childbirth. 
I mean, come on. Do we see some of the humor there of us trying to take the literalness of things and not seeing that Christ is the one who takes every category of explanation and blows it apart and the hope is Christ would be formed in you. That's why I love the beginning of John's gospel. John chapter one, it's marvelous. Much of this stored in my heart and my mind. And I love verse 12, which says, But to all who received him, Jesus, the word become flesh, who dwelt among us, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. In the very beginning, the beloved disciple understands after having spent all this time with Jesus, he doesn't need to operate with that son's language because he's seen it and he knows how his gospel is going to end with the gospel proclamation being shared for the first time by a sister, another sibling in the family of faith. You see how power is used here? God. God gives us the power. The power not to say, I'm in authority. Not the power to say that this is the way that society works. Not the power to say that this is what the Bible says. But instead, to like Jesus, grow into something that's different. Because remember, Jesus he had to grow into something too. Do you realize that? He didn't come as a full-grown man. He came in powerless as a child. And when the word becomes flesh and lives among us, it is audacious to think that the God of the cosmos would subject himself, as, as Paul writes in Philippians, he would empty himself, that he would be, take on the very nature of a slave, that he wouldn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he would start just like every single one of us to show us that regardless of what you've been born into, what you were encultured into, there is a radically different way in which you and I are called to exercise our power once we recognize that God, sovereign God, gives us the ability and the power to become children, to start all over. It doesn't matter who you are, where you have been, if you choose Jesus the Christ, if you are baptized into him, if you clothe yourself with Christ, if you are divinely persuaded because of his initiative and you understand that his death, burial, and resurrection aren't just some fuzzy moment in history, but they change everything. And it, it's not just everything. Actually, at the very beginning, before God started all of this, when we see the curse before then, it wasn't supposed to be the way that we've been living. And so when God enters in, as this man, when he strikes the serpent's head, all that we find ourselves in, this in between 2020, it's not supposed to keep looking this way. There's something that comes after this time. And I would dare you to think less of yourself and more of Jesus the Christ. This is about power. We have as children of God to learn and live counterculturally, as Christ demonstrates. In your email this week, you, you saw Brit reference Mark chapter 10. 
We're two disciples of Jesus who have yet to see the, the culmination of what power is gonna look like in the kingdom, which is taking on the cross. Before they see them, they think the kingdom is this physical place where they're going to rule and reign. As the brothers, they're arguing about their positioning and Jesus, he lets it go on, but the other disciples are angry and so they ask Jesus, what in the world is going on? And Jesus tells them, you know that the Gentiles and those rulers among them lord it over them and the great tyrants over them, but not so among you. Whoever wishes to be the greatest must become the servant of all. For wishes to become first must become slave of all. You see how Jesus and then the radically transformed Paul use language that isn't trying to say this is the way it should stay, but instead are commenting on how Really, no matter what people want to say about the way it's supposed to be, you and I, every single one of us, have the power to choose differently. John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I've received this command from my Father. Power is a powerful thing. As Mal and I are raising our boys, if you ask them what's the most important lesson, they won't tell you to listen to Jesus. And the reason why that's not the most important lesson is because I can't just tell them to do that and expect things to go wonderfully. No, Mal and I are raising our boys to believe that perhaps the greatest lesson they can learn is you get to choose. That God in his sovereignty gave you the power of choice. And there are a lot of things outside of our control, certainly, but there is stuff that is within it. And the stuff that is within it, rather than grasping for power, or saying that it needs to be this way or that way, what would it look like, men and women of Sunridge, if we chose in our power that only comes from Christ, if we chose, even though, even though others could say it has to be this way or that way, uh, we realized that we could, just as Christ, empty out our lives on behalf of one another. As Paul writes to the church in Galatia, that in our freedom, we would become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in this command, to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I wanna comment just very quickly on practical things happening here at Sunridge Community Church in regards to this series. When we look at these letters in the New Testament and the churches to whom they're writing to you, can you please understand, please hear, this patriarchal male slave, honor, shame, power-dominant culture and society is what they write into, but Christ changes all of that. And because of that, today, we in this community of faith can choose to do things differently. We can be countercultural 
to secular society, but we can also be countercultural to the religious traditions, Christianity itself, the way that we were encultured into it. Because when I read this closely, I'm blown away by the bigness of Jesus the Christ. The question that I have for every single one of us is how will you steward your power and to demonstrate to you, church family, to demonstrate to you that we're not just a community of faith who will argue about whether or not we're gonna be complementarian or egalitarian or tell you that you need to do it this way or that way, but instead we're saying we believe in Jesus the Christ and we're all actively learning to submit to him and pour out on behalf of one another. To demonstrate that to you, our entire ministry team here, men and women, are going to be inviting you to take your eyes off of the issues and to see that in Christ, we're all one. There's something great for us to be done. I'd like to invite up our ministry department. Well, the rally is the name of the fall campaign that we are kicking off today, officially, right now. We are asking the people of Sunridge, yes, every single one of us, to offer up something on behalf of our young people, both here in our congregation and in our entire community. It doesn't matter who you are, your life stage or circumstance, your schedule, your skill set, your physical safety needs, each one of us has loaves and fish to offer. Nothing is too small or insignificant, and nothing is too bold when we move out in faith, side by side, for the sake of the people right in front of us. In this season, when our young people will spend upwards to eight hours a day by themselves looking into a computer screen, we're inviting you to help provide an opportunity for in-person connections. And what we're talking about is safely and responsibly utilizing our backyards, our church campus, outdoor avenues uh, to, to fill in that crucial gap for young people. These would be our elementary school children all the way up through young adult. So what do you have to offer? The idea is that you would look at your life and ask God to show you what you have to bless the families in our valley. There are three categories of potential offerings for you to consider, play, partnership, and purpose. Play is pretty straightforward, right? We know that our kids need opportunities for fun, for making and meeting up with friends, getting to be creative, and moving their bodies. Maybe you've coached a sports team and have the ability to practice skills with kids. Do you have a pool in your backyard or a, an opportunity to host an outdoor movie night? Maybe you enjoy mountain biking or Zumba. Whatever it is, we know that everybody will need breaks from their screens and an opportunity to have fun together. And another category to consider is partnership. We want to partner with parents and with caregivers uh, to provide academic resources for students and also create spaces where parents and caregivers can find their own community uh, and sense of support. Uh, so this is going to look like academic help and tutoring from those of you who have experience in the field of education. Uh, so maybe you would consider becoming a proctor or a tutor or a reading buddy at our on-campus venue that we are calling The Link. We also want to offer resources for uh, overcoming mental and emotional health challenges within families as well. 
One of the biggest challenges we saw this last spring was an overwhelming sense of apathy as well as a lack of meaning that the season curated, especially for our young people. So quickly they had to cope with losing control of every aspect area of their life um, and had to do so, do so so, so fast. And so we're going to find creative ways to come alongside our students by coordinating life skills workshops like photography or sewing or automotive repair, you name it. Or maybe you're even interested in hosting a Bible study for our middle school and our high school students, helping them look to Jesus for truth, hope, and anchoring. And we want to also have different volunteer opportunities for our students uh, to use their God-given gifts, to use them and strengthen them to not only help our church, but also the world. And we want them to do that side by side with their intergenerational church family. So as you can hear, we want our entire church family to participate in this. We need you guys. This is not just a children's ministry project or a student ministry project. This is for all of us. I think about all the amazing women at Sunridge and all of your gifts and your talents, your hobbies and your knowledge. You can bring all that to bear to help the kids in our community. One idea that I had, a real practical idea, is to gather a group of you together and we'll be the lunch ladies. And we could make sack lunches and deliver them to kids in their homes around town just to bring up their day, but I'm waiting for you to tell us some other creative things that we could do to help. So I can't wait to hear all of those ideas coming in. Regardless of your season of life, uh, each one of us has something that we can do. Um, young adults, uh, what do you have to offer those younger peers that look up to you so much? Could you possibly, possibly be a um, reading buddy once a week for an elementary student? Or if you're one of our retirees, awesome retirees that call Sunridge home, um, I know you guys have life experiences and interests. Would you be willing to share that? Having somebody or having to learn to change a tire, um, you guys could do that. Providing a break from screens, our homes, and even each other can help students and, and their parents endure the day-to-day -day grind of remote learning. Whether it's a one-day class or event like a park day or an ongoing class or workshop like teaching ASL or teaching photography, every effort each of us makes will play a significant part in raising spirits. You know, we've always known what a gift it is to have this large building and this campus. But right now, we're not able to fully utilize it. So that's why we look forward with joy to filling these spaces to take advantage of our electricity, our internet, and yes, even the air conditioning to help families that might be struggling that as they're going through this whole remote learning thing. You know, we're looking forward to the potential of being able to um, witness the love of God in new and creative ways to fully and safely utilize this campus. Today, we'd like to give each of you a very specific action step. In last week's video, Lisa already asked you to be thinking about and praying with us for ways to be a family. So today, it's time to move. What we're asking you to do is to go to our website right immediately after this live stream and check out the form that we've created called the Rally Provider Form. So some of you have already reached out and let us know about some awesome things that you've been thinking about, ways to help, 
And we're so excited about that. Use this form to tell us more about it. Others of you might be a little bit lost and have no idea where to get started or how to think about ideas. Go to the form for sure. Because we are confident that if you look at that form prayerfully, it will spark inspiration in you for ways that you can join us in this season. You guys, this is such an extraordinarily challenging time for our families. And that is why we are so excited to be the family of God with you, Sunridge, and for the sake of our community. So together, we're going to rally around our students and our parents and everybody that's involved in our educational system in this valley. I hope that you'll join us in doing that. I hope that you'll prayerfully consider the options and the opportunities that are before you. I'm going to pray right now, and I hope that you'll just bow and pray with me, put your heart into this, but also continue to pray for our community because there is so much going on and so many opportunities for us to touch this valley with the gospel and to show them the love of God. Will you join me in prayer? God, we, we dedicate ourselves uh, to making a difference in this community. I can think of so many times in the history of the church where they made up for the gap that was there in their culture or in their families and society. And so, God, we are dedicating ourselves to this. And I pray that those that stand alongside us as members and part of the family called Sunridge Community Church, that you would prompt our hearts that you would cause us to discipline ourselves and make room in our schedules, that you would allow our imaginations to, to overflow with ways that we can help our students and our parents and our educators. Make that so apparent to us and make it meaningful in our hearts, Lord, that it's, it's more than, you know, it, our tendency would be to just think that this is such a small thing. But, a bunch of small things add up to something big in this case. And so, God, we give ourselves over to this, and we ask your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And, that, and we ask that you would allow us, your church, the family of God, to operate in that way and to make a difference in this community in the way that you've called us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me in that. And now, if you would just join us in one last worship song. Thanks, Sunridge.